It's good to be here this evening. We appreciate everyone's presence on a Sunday evening. Appreciate you taking the time uh, here at the close of the day to come and worship together. And our prayer is, our hope is that we'll be benefited by these things that we do and, and God will be pleased with our efforts. Our primary objective, of course, is to worship God and praise Him and please Him. And we'll be, if we do that and we do that in the right way, we'll, we'll be benefited from it. I don't have any doubt about that and we'll encourage each other as well. We'll talk a little bit tonight about the Great Commission. And so I'll invite you to turn to the book of Matthew, right at the end of the book of Matthew. After the, Jesus' resurrection, he gathered his apostles together. Of course, he appeared to them over the space of about 40 days. Acts chapter 1 tells us. And toward the end of that period, he gathered them together and gave them instructions about what to do after his departure, after he ascends to the right hand of God. And so in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 says, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so here's Matthew's account of the Great Commission. We call it the Great Commission. Jesus is giving his apostles a, a job to do, a commission. And uh, they're to go and make disciples, go to all nations and make disciples. And so it's a great commission. It's, it's great in lots of ways, but uh, it's, it is in fact very well named the Great Commission. Well, all four gospel writers have their account of the Great Commission. Let's look at Mark chapter 16, for example, verses 15 and 16. And this, again, the Great Commission, this reads a little differently, but it's the same work. It's the same job that they're to go out and do. And so verse 15 says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and is baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And so you see some similar elements there. They're to go. They're to go to all nations. Mark says that a little bit differently, all creation. Uh, Mark speaks about baptism as, as Matthew does, but Mark says the one who believes and is baptized will be saved. And so a lot of the same information, but some additional information as well. Well, Luke's account of this is quite a bit different. Look at Luke chapter 24, and again, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, and he gathers his disciples together, and uh, in Luke's account, he'll, he'll be ascending into heaven in the following verses. But look at what he says in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and uh, rise again on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin would be preached or proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And so this is a, a little different, isn't it? And, but some of the same elements. They are to go and preach. They are to begin their work in Jerusalem. And they are to preach the resurrection of Jesus. They are to give their testimony, their eyewitness account of the resurrection of Jesus. 
and they're to preach repentance and the remission of sins. And so, again, some of the same information, but some different information as well. Go over to John chapter 20, and we'll look at verse 21. And so, Jesus is again, after the resurrection of Jesus, and He appears to His disciples, and He says in verse 21, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Well, you may know that the word apostle means one who is sent. And so here you have Jesus saying, you're going to be my apostles. I'm sending you. I'm sending you out to preach the gospel. And so, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins uh, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, uh, they have been retained. And so, again, John's account is a little bit different. I'm sending you out, and you're going to go out, and you're going to preach, and you're going to preach the facts of the gospel and the terms of the gospel. And when people receive that and obey it, their sins will be forgiven. And so, the ones that you forgive, based on their receiving the gospel and obeying the gospel, their sins will be forgiven. You know, we even have uh, something of an account of the Great Commission, I think, in Acts chapter 1. And uh, verse, uh, verse uh, Acts chapter 1, verse, uh, this is verse 8. He tells them, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so, I'm sending you out. I'm, you start in Jerusalem and go out into the outlying areas, Judea, and then, then out to Samaria, and then to the rest of the, the world. And so the, the idea of being sent out is, is at least implied in that, in that statement. And so in summation, we can say that Jesus sent the apostles out to preach. Uh, they were to go to all nations, and they were to make disciples by preaching the gospel. Those who received the gospel in faith and repented and were baptized, received the forgiveness of their sins. The apostles were then to continue to teach them all that Christ commanded. And so I'm sending you out to the all, everywhere in the world, the whole creation. You're to make disciples of all the nations. You make disciples by preaching the gospel to them. When they receive it in faith, when they repent, Luke 24, when they're baptized, Matthew 28, they'll be saved. Their sins will be forgiven, and uh, they'll become disciples of Jesus. And the, the job isn't finished then. It's really just begun in a way. Because remember, Matthew's account says that they were to continue to teach them all that Christ commanded. Well, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that many heard the gospel and obeyed. Sometimes there's kind of a, a general statement that is made. Look at a couple of examples of that. In Acts chapter one, 6, for example, verse 1, At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number. We don't have any details there as to what people did to become disciples. It just says, when the disciples were increasing. And so we know that they were more and more people were becoming disciples. That's a, a rather general statement. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, another one. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. And so, again, another, another state, just sort of a general statement. More and more believers were being added to the Lord. 
And so the gospel is going out and people are hearing it and they're embracing it. And, and we have these statements that the number of disciples is increasing and more and more believers are being added. But sometimes we come across accounts that are rather detailed. We read about the details of their experience hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel. There are several of these in the book of Acts, and so I want to just kind of work, work our way through these examples of conversion. And then we're going to ask some questions about that uh, toward, toward the end of our study together. And so let's go to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, this is uh, the day of Pentecost. Remember, Jesus had told the apostles, you know, stay in Jerusalem until the power comes upon you. The, the power will come upon you with the Holy Spirit. And then you began your work of preaching the gospel and making the disciples. Well, that begins in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. The apostles are together there in the city of Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them, and they begin to preach. Remember, they began to preach in other languages on this occasion, so that everybody who is there, and there are people there from all over the place, lots of different languages being spoken, and so the Lord enables them to speak different languages so that the people can understand. Now Peter's sermon that day centered upon the resurrection of Christ. Now 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're told that some, the basic elements of the gospel are that Christ was crucified, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, that He was seen by witnesses. And so there's fundamental elements of the gospel, fundamental features of the gospel. And so just make that connection with Acts chapter 2 when Peter is preaching and his sermon centers on the resurrection of Jesus. Now it tells them that Jesus died, that they had been responsible for his death. But in verse 24 he says, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And he supports that affirmation that God raised him up, first of all by quoting Scripture. This is from the 16th Psalm. And part of the quotation is verse 27, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And so the Christ, although He was killed and died and was buried, did not stay in the tomb long enough for His body to decay, but God raised Him up again. And so Peter is saying, the Scripture, our Scriptures support our claim that Jesus is raised from the dead. But he also depends on his eyewitness account. And so verse 32 says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And uh, Peter, we're told, is preaching with, along with the other apostles, the, the, the eleven. And I, I kind of picture him saying, You know, this Jesus God raised up, we're, we're all witnesses. You know, turning and, and pointing to his fellow apostles as, as they're preaching. And so Jesus is raised from the dead. That's fundamental to the gospel, isn't it? Jesus said, go preach the gospel. What do we find Peter doing? He's, he's preaching the gospel. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the implications of the resurrection as well. You know, uh, a good sermon does more than just relate facts, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, you, you, can, you can give a lot of facts in a sermon. That's great. I'm not criticizing that. But a good sermon, and you know, a sermon really isn't complete until you answer the question, well, so what? You know? And so here's all the facts. Well, so what? So what, what, what's, what's so important about that? You could say that about this sermon. 
Okay, oh, Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, so what? Okay, here's the so what, verse 30 for 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the so what. Jesus is Lord and Christ. And you need to be sure, you need to accept that and be sure of that. You know how we might say that in another way? You need to believe that. You need to believe that God has made him Lord and Christ. How do you know that? Well, by his resurrection from the dead. Well, verse 37 tells us that those in the audience heard that they were cut to the heart or pierced to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what, well, what, do, we, what do we do? And Peter said, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, is, is, is the Great Commission being fulfilled on this occasion? Remember what we said about the Great Commission? We pulled the different accounts of the Great Commission. We tried to give a summation. They go into the, all the world. They're preaching the gospel. Whoever believes it and repents, that, that came from Luke 24. Repentance and remission of sins would be preached. Well, we find that here in verse 38. And he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Is the Great Commission being, are they doing their work that God gave them to do? Well, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're beginning to do the work. And it starts in Jerusalem. We find that in Luke 24, start in Jerusalem. And so they, they start in Jerusalem, so we see them beginning to fulfill the work that they've been given to do. As a result of the audience hearing the gospel, receiving it, and obeying it, obeying the terms of the gospel, they are forgiven of their sins, or they're, they're saved. They become disciples, make disciples of all the nation. Okay, they've begun making disciples. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 8, and here we find another case of conversion where we find, we find some detail given. And so in Acts chapter 8, we find Philip. Now, Philip's not an apostle. He's a disciple, very committed disciple, a man who's full of faith, and uh, he's very knowledgeable, very, uh, uh, very serious about his faith, very enthusiastic, ready ready to share the good news. He's not an apostle, but he's ready to tell others about Christ. Uh, you remember that uh, a persecution against these early Christians breaks out in Jerusalem as uh, the result of Saul's influence, Saul of Tarsus, and the disciples are, are scattered everywhere, and they go about preaching the Word. And so these, these are just regular disciples, not apostles. They stay in Jerusalem. But, but others, they, they leave Jerusalem, and they go out preaching the Word. Well, Philip goes down to the city of Samaria, and he teaches the gospel there. He encounters a man named Simon uh, while, he's, uh, while he's there. And Simon was uh, described here as a, a magician, a sorcerer, a practitioner of the occult arts, or, or something like that. And, uh, and he hears the gospel as well. Look at verse 12. When they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Samaritans hear the gospel, on this occasion preached by Philip. They hear the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. They receive it, and they are baptized. Very similar in some ways to what we found in Acts chapter 2, but also similar to what we saw in the Great Commission. Well, verse 13 says, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. 
So even Simon himself was baptized. So again, we see the Great Commission being carried out. The Gospel is preached here to Samaritans. Now that's, that's, that's important. That the Gospel is being preached to Samaritans. What, what's so important about that? Well, you remember we're told in John chapter 4 that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There's animosity between Jews and Samaritans. They, they don't get along at all. And yet here's Philip. He's willing to go into another nation, so to speak, kind of cross that line, that uh, social barrier that existed between Jew and Samaria. He's willing to break through that barrier and preach the gospel to the Samaritans. Go to all nations. That means go to Samaritans as well, doesn't it? And so we see that element being fulfilled here in, the, in this case of, uh, of conversion. People believe the good news about the kingdom. They are baptized. And so those elements of the Great Commission are being fulfilled. In the second part of the uh, Acts chapter 8, we read about another case of conversion. This is uh, not a group of people. This is just an individual person. He's, he's from Ethiopia. He's uh, an important man in Ethiopia. He's, uh, he works with the queen of the Ethiopians. And he's been to Jerusalem to worship. And so uh, he uh, may be a, a Jew, a proselyte. He's an Ethiopian, so maybe a proselyte. But anyway, he's on his, been to Jerusalem to worship, and now he's on his way back home. That's a long, long trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, especially by chariot. But uh, he's willing to make it. He's very sincere about his faith. And so now he's on his way back home. And the Holy Spirit tells Philip, the evangelist, the one that we read about in going to Samaria in Acts chapter 8, to go and talk to this man, talk to this Ethiopian. And so, of course, he does. As he approaches the chariot that the Ethiopian is riding in, and can hear that he's reading from the Scriptures. He's reading from Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he doesn't open his mouth. Now, the Ethiopian has a question about that. Who's the, who's the prophet talking about in that passage? Is, is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? I don't quite understand. And look at what the passage says. Philip opened his mouth. Beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And so he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the good news of Christ. And uh, he explained to him, no doubt, how Jesus fulfilled that scripture, that he bore our sins. That's what Isaiah 53 is about. He bore our sins on the cross. And if we will believe that and repent and be baptized, well, then our sins will be forgiven. Now, how do I know he preached that? Well, they came to a certain water, and the Ethiopian said, well, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? So Philip must have told him about the need, his need to be baptized. And so it came to some water. What hinders me? Well, if you believe with all your heart, you can be. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so they get down out of the chariot. They go down into the water, and the Ethiopian is baptized. And the Bible says he went on his way rejoicing. Why would he go on his way rejoicing? Well, now he's forgiven. Now, now he's saved. He's heard the good news of Christ. He's heard the, the requirements of the gospel, the, the commands of the gospel. He's obeyed them. And his sins have been forgiven. He's been saved. And no, so no wonder he's uh, going on his way rejoicing. Now, repentance is not specifically mentioned in this passage, but we understand that he believed in what Philip taught him about Christ. 
And he made the necessary changes in his life to become a disciple of Jesus. That's what the story is about. He's becoming a disciple of Jesus. So whatever changes were needed in his life to become a disciple, well, no doubt he began that on, on this occasion. And then Acts chapter 9 we read about, this is a, what's this, a fourth uh, example of conversion, Acts chapter 9. And we also read about this uh, a conversion in Acts chapter 22 and chapter 26. And so this is a momentous occasion as well. So we, we, the, the first example of conversion on the day of Pentecost, that was momentous, wasn't it? It's the first one. And then the gospel goes to Samaria. Well, that, that was important as well. We talked about that. Now an Ethiopian, he becomes a Christian. So now another nation hears the gospel. And now we read about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Now what's so important about this occasion? Well, he's a vehement opponent of the gospel. And yet the gospel changes him. He's a great persecutor of the church. He began his assault on these early disciples in the city of Jerusalem, but soon his violence toward them, uh, he took his violence to other cities, in this case, the city of Damascus. On the way to Damascus, the Lord appears to him and speaks to him. He's told to go into the city, and a man would come to him and talk to him. And so Ananias, turns out to be a man named Ananias, hesitated at first to go and talk to this persecutor, but at last he went and he taught him the gospel. We can read more detail about what Ananias said in Acts 22, verses 12 through 16. Saul is convinced through his experience and, and through the words of Ananias, and Saul is convinced that Jesus is Lord. He spends three days praying and fasting. Just think about the difference in his life. He's on his way to persecute Christians, you know. You can't get any more committed against the gospel than that. And yet, just like that, he changes, and now he believes that Jesus is Lord, and he's ready to promote the gospel of Christ. Wow, what, what a change. Well, what, what would you call, there, there's one word that would describe that kind of change in a person's life. What is it? Well, he's, he's repented, hasn't he? He's changed. That's what repentance produces, it produces a change. The fact that he spends three days praying and fasting would indicate a change of mind as, as well. And so he has repented of his sin and he's baptized as well. So in Acts chapter 9, uh, we're told that he listens to Ananias teach and he, he's baptized. And then uh, let me get into Acts chapter 9. I said of Acts chapter 10, no wonder it didn't look quite right. In verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. In Acts 22 and verse 6, Ananias says, Saul, what are you waiting for? Yeah. Well, arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And of course, he does. In Acts chapter 10, we read about Cornelius, another case of conversion. We have quite a bit of detail here given. Cornelius is, now this is another momentous occasion. What's important about this one? Well, Cornelius is a Gentile. He's not, he's not a Jew in any sense of the word. Now, he fears God, but, but he's not a Jew at all. He's a, he's a Gentile. He's a good man. He fears God. He's devout. He prays to God continually. 
He's described as a righteous and God-fearing man, but he's not saved yet. He needs to do something to be saved. He's still in his sin. Peter is sent to his house, making a long story short, but Peter is sent to his house and he teaches Cornelius and the many people who are assembled at his house. And so you have Cornelius there and you have many people. No doubt Cornelius has invited others to come in and to hear and so, and so they do. Now Peter teaches him the gospel. He teaches him about Christ. Verses 34 through 43, won't take the time to read all of that. But he teaches him about Christ. He begins by saying this, I certainly understand that now that God is not one to show partiality, but in, in every nation the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. The word which He sent to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. And so you can continue that reading if, if you'd like. Now while Peter is preaching, the Holy Spirit is poured out on Cornelius and others as a sign to Peter and those that went with him, that these people are acceptable to God as Gentiles. And so the Lord is, is in the process of convincing Peter, and here's, here's sort of the, the crowning uh, con, uh, the thing that will convince them. The Holy Spirit is poured out on them. They speak in tongues. And look at what Peter says toward the end of this. Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, can he? The Holy Spirit isn't poured out to show Peter that Cornelius has been saved. It's a sign to Peter that Cornelius and the Gentiles are acceptable now. Okay? And so now Peter commands, he orders them to be baptized. And why do they need to be baptized? Well, that's where your sins are washed away. Then in Acts chapter 16, we read about Lydia, another case of conversion. Not as much detail given about her, but we'll look at it. Uh, Paul has gone to the city of Philippi. Now this, this is a cross on another continent. So he's been preaching in Asia and that area and never really even thought about crossing the Aegean over into to Macedonia and that area. But he had a dream of a man from Macedonia saying, come on over here and preach to us. And so, and so Paul goes. He goes over into Macedonia and he comes to Philippi. And he meets a lady named Lydia. She's at the riverside with other women, and they're, they're praying, they're worshiping. And um, he's preaching the Word. She's a worshiper of God, and she was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Lydia hears the preaching, and the Lord opens her heart. She accepts it, and she as well is baptized. In Acts chapter 16, at the end of the chapter, we read about a jailer. Paul and Silas have been thrown into prison. They cast an evil spirit out of a girl who's being used for profit by her masters. They make certain accusations against Paul, and Paul ends up being put into prison. Instead of bemoaning their situation, they're praying and singing while in prison, and the other prisoners are listening to them. During the night, the Lord sends an earthquake. The cells are open. The jailer is about to take his own life, thinking all the prisoners have escaped. Paul stops him, and the jailer asks, What must I do to be saved? So you, you can imagine, you just imagine the, the intensity with which he asked that. Please tell me. What must, what must I do to be saved? Well, Paul says, 
Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you, you will be saved, you and your household. He didn't stop there. He continues, They spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in the house. And he took them that very hour of the night, and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household. And he brought them into his house, and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household, with his whole family. And so another very similar case, isn't it? He, he hears Paul and Silas. They're singing. They're praying. Uh, they've been preaching the good news about salvation. And so he asks them, what do I need? And so they, they, te- they teach him the gospel. They teach him about Christ. They tell him to believe in Christ. They also teach him about the need to be baptized. And, and he is. He, he, he kind of turned, uh, did an about face. He was the jailer keeping them in jail, but then he invites them to, their, to his house. Hey, come over to my house. <laughs> and, and so they do. And so maybe a sign of repentance in that as well is his attitude and actions certainly change. And then one other case we'll look at, Acts chapter 18. I think we got seven or eight cases here that we're, we're working through. In Acts chapter 18, Paul goes to the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth is an exceptionally immoral city, and it seems that Paul has some concerns about staying there and preaching for a long time. You read in verses 9 and 10 that the Lord uh, said to Paul by night in a vision, Don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and, and don't be silent. I'm with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you. I have lots of people in this city. So must have been, he kind of had some hesitation about staying there, such an immoral and ungodly and and uh, didn't seem like a very good place, very likely place for people to receive the gospel. But the Lord said, you should stay right here. I'm with you. And I got lots of people in this city. So you just got to find them. And so Paul preaches the gospel. And uh, people hear it there, even in the city of Corinth. And they receive it and they're baptized. And so look at verse Eight. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, that would be a Jew, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, that would be Gentiles among that group, wouldn't it? When they heard, were believing and being baptized. And so here we have Jew and Gentile. In, now this is in Greece. So we've seen the gospel go to Greece and Macedonia. And we've seen it go to uh, Philippi uh, in Asia. You know that that modern-day Turkey. We've seen it in in Jerusalem. We've seen it in Samaria. And so we've seen it going to all these places. Well, let's just ask a few questions. Were were the instructions given by Jesus in the Great Commission being carried out? Well, yes. Yes, they were, weren't they? The apostles. Jesus gives the Great Commission to the apostles. Now, we've seen that the work of spreading the gospel wasn't limited to the apostles, but we did see the apostles involved in preaching the gospel, Preach the good news about Jesus or the good news about the kingdom of God. It's described in various ways. They preach in Jerusalem and Samaria and Caesarea. It's where Cornelius was in Caesarea. In Philippi and Corinth. We find Christians in other places as well that we didn't look at. Asia, for example, and Syria and Rome. And so the gospel is going out to various nations. And um, find Jews and Gentiles, Ethiopians, Macedonians, Greeks and people of other nations hearing the gospel and responding to it. The commands of the gospel are being taught. People are being taught to believe, to repent, to be baptized. And so the commands 
the instructions given in the Great Commission are being carried out. I'll stop right there and talk about baptism a little bit. Uh, almost all religious bodies who claim to be followers of Jesus, they, they practice baptism in some way. But you know, when we study the Bible, there's three things that we want to get right about baptism. We want to baptize the right people. All right, so in the New Testament, believe, penitent believers are baptized. People who have committed sin and repent of that sin, they believe in the Lord, so they're penitent believers, they're baptized. And so we want to get the right people. Now, men and women were baptized. We, you know, gender doesn't matter. People from every nation baptized, but penitent believers were baptized. We want to get the right people. We want to get the right action as well. And so the right action, you know, the word baptism means to immerse or to submerge. Do you remember in Acts chapter 8 we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. There was enough water there for both of them to go down into it and then come up out of it. And so uh, baptism, practice in the New Testament, was an immersion in water. So that's what we want to do. We'll follow the New Testament in that. And so we want to get the right action. Also want to get the right purpose. Why is it that people were baptized in the New Testament? Well, repent and be baptized for, you know, that's, that looks forward to, that looks ahead, for in order to obtain the remission of sins. Well, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. It was only after people were baptized that they went on their way rejoicing. We talked about that a little bit already. And so we want to get all that right about baptism. We see that in the New Testament. The right people, the right action, the right purpose. You know, sometimes... People have the right purpose, but they get the wrong people and the wrong action. They might want to baptize for the remission of sins, maybe original sin. And so they baptize a baby who's not a penitent believer, not, not a believer, hasn't committed sin to repent of, and they'll do it by sprinkling. Well, that's not New Testament baptism, is it? And so it might be the right reason, but it's the wrong person and the, the wrong action. Sometimes people might get the right person and the right action, but not for the right reason. And so an adult may be baptized as a sign that his sins have already been forgiven. No, no, that, that's not he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Or repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So we'll get the right person, the right action for the right reason. And just follow the New Testament in that, in that teaching. But were the commands of the New Testament or the instructions given by Jesus in the Great Commission carried out? Well, well, yes, they were. What did these people become when they obeyed the gospel? Well, what did they become? Well, there are various words used to describe these converts to Christ. They are called believers in several passages in the New Testament. Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, all the more believers in the Lord. Multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. They're, they're believers. Why would they be called believers? Well, faith is fundamental principle of the new life in Christ. We become Christians by faith. You know, that's the fundamental principle. And then we repent because of our faith in Christ. We're baptized because of our faith in Christ. And so it's a fundamental principle of new life in Christ. And then we walk by faith and not by sight. And so they're called believers, or they're described as believers. They're described as disciples as well. The number of disciples kept increasing. 
A disciple is someone who learns from a teacher and who practices what he teaches. It's not merely an academic exercise. So a person might learn about Jesus, but he doesn't practice what Jesus taught. Not really a disciple, is he? And so he's a learner, and he's also a practitioner. Maybe, I'm not sure that's the right word, but maybe get the idea. He practices what Jesus taught. In a passage like John chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus says, you know, if you practice what I teach, then you will truly be my disciples. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You hear the word, accept it, and you practice it. You follow it. They're described as saints as well. Uh, in, in, in the world, a saint is sort of a super-Christian one set apart from the ordinary Christian by extraordinary works, maybe even miracles, a virtuous life, and so forth. But in the New Testament, all Christians are saints. I mean, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been made a saint. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of Christ. And so they're called saints as well. And you see that in various places through the New Testament. I, I've cited Acts chapter 9 and verse 13. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. Now think about that. They're described as believers. They're described as disciples. They're described as saints. Now those are common nouns. I'm call, you know, call uh, Paul a little grammar there. So, so remember your, your ninth grade grammar. <laughs> But those are common nouns. What's a common noun? What's a spelled with a lowercase letter and refers to anyone in that class? It's different from a proper noun. A proper noun is a, a name. And so the disciples are called Christians. That's the name that they wore. All right, they're called Christians. And so uh, what did they become? Well, they became saints. They became believers. They became disciples. They are called Christians. And so sometimes we would say, what did they become? They became Christians. The disciples are called Christians first in Antioch. Now that word is found three times in the New Testament. Uh, Agrippa says to Paul, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. Acts 26 and verse 28. And 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16. If anyone suffer as a Christian... He's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So that's the only name that we find disciples being called in the New Testament. Christian. Just, just Christian. The name suggests a person devoted to Christ. The suffix I-A-N or A-N refers to a class or a group. It kind of identifies where they belong. We're Alabamians, you know. Have that I-A-N suffix, Alabama. It means that we live in Alabama. We are Americans. Has that A-N suffix? Well, these are Christians. It, it, it suggests they belong to Christ. They follow Christ. And again, this is the only name disciples of Jesus wore in the New Testament. But did you know today there are many names, many names worn by believers in Jesus today. Many names. Not, not just the name Christian. That's what we find in the New Testament. Today, many names attached to believers and attached to that name Christian. 
That's just indicative of how divided believers in Jesus are today. Why do we wear different names? Well, I wear this name just to distinguish me from you people that wear that name. <laughs> it's just indicative of the division that exists. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying and He says, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through there the apostles' word, that they may all be one, even as you, uh, Father, are in Me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world might believe that you sent Me. Jesus prayed for unity, not, not division among His disciples. prayed for unity. And so our, our appeal, our plea is, let's, let's drop all other religious names and simply call ourselves what the New Testament calls disciples and saints and believers, Christians. Just simply the name Christian. It was enough for these converts that we talked about, all these cases of conversion we, we looked at, it, it was sufficient for them to become Christians and only Christians, and that should be sufficient for us today, right? Yeah, just be a Christian. Here's, another, here's one, one other question. I know I'm out of time. Let me get through this. So when these people obeyed the gospel, the people on Pentecost, uh, the people in Samaria, Simon, Lydia, the jailer, Cornelius, when they became, when they obeyed the gospel, the Lord added them to what? You fill in the blank. Well, what did the Lord add them to? The Lord added them to what? Well, I think probably most of us already know that answer, but maybe not everybody. Well, the Lord, Acts 2, verse 47, King James Version says to His church, that group of disciples that were formed on Pentecost, or let me say that a different way, that group of disciples that was formed on Pentecost became known as the church. Now, Jesus said He was going to build His church, Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, and He began building it through the preaching of Peter and the others on the day of Pentecost, and it grew. We've already seen that, that it grew. Multitudes were being added to their number. The church is the ecclesia of God. Simon talked about that in his class not long ago. The ecclesia, the, the assembly, we might say the, the community of God. That was a word that's used to describe Israel in the Old Testament, the assembly of the Lord. Well, today, after Christ has come, Christ is the Redeemer, now the church, those who are in Christ, they are the assembly of the Lord. We are the ecclesia. It's not, not old Israel anymore. Now, now it's those who are in Christ who are the assembly of the Lord. And, so, and how do we get to be in that number? Well, the Lord adds us to that number when we hear the gospel and we obey it. You know, I think you could fill in the blank in another way as well. The Lord added them to the body of Christ. Now, am I being presumptuous there? I, I, don't, I don't think so, because we learn in Ephesians chapter 1 that the church is the body of Christ. And so these people are being added to the body of Christ as well. Ephesians 1, 22, He put all things in subjection under His feet, gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And so when people obey the gospel, the Lord is adding them to the body of Christ. He's adding them to His family as well. That's, the church is the family. 1, Peter, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, I'm writing this so that you'll know how to behave yourself in the church of God, the household of God, and the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And so God is adding people to His family when they receive the gospel and 
obey the terms of the gospel. They're being translated out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So they're leaving the power of darkness, and the Lord is taking them out of that kingdom, and He's putting them, transferring them in, into His kingdom now. Now that's the work of the Lord. The Lord is doing that. He's doing that work as people in faith repent of their sins and are baptized. Just an observation or two. No, no Christian in the New Testament was added to, joined, or was encouraged to join a, a denomination. No, no, no Christian in the New Testament was asked to join or, per, or encouraged to join a denomination. Well, there weren't any denominations then, were there? And yet there were Christians. There were Christians then. There were Christians meeting together with other Christians to worship then. There are Christians organizing themselves in local churches with elders and deacons and carrying out the work of the Lord together, mutually edifying each other, helping each other get to heaven. Well, why, why can't we do that now? Well, why can't we do that? that? That's the New Testament model. And so our, our appeal is for non-denominational Christianity. Now that's, that's what was begun in the first century, on the, begun on the day of Pentecost. And then through these uh, cases of conversion that we looked at, none of them were invited. None of them were encouraged to be anything other than a member of the body of Christ, a member of the Lord's church, uh, a, a citizen in the kingdom of God, a child in the family of God. And so our plea is to drop denominational names and organizations and follow the New Testament model for the church. It's what our appeal is, what we're trying to do. People might say, we're not doing a very good job at it. Okay, be that as it may. <laughs> that's our goal and that, that's our aim. This is just practice this simple model, New Testament model of the gospel, Christianity, today. If it was sufficient then... It'll be sufficient today. All right, so we're out of time. I appreciate your patience tonight and listening to all of that. And, and just, just consider that. Give that some thought. And I hope that we'll, we'll understand that. Uh, you know, sometimes people grow up uh, and, uh, you know, go, going to worship, going to church, going to Bible class, and they, they still don't really get this simple concept. It's a, it's a simple concept. Simply be a Christian banding together with others who are simply Christians to carry out the work of the Lord, to worship Him, to help each other get to heaven. That's what we want to do. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the opportunity today that we've had to meet together and to worship. Uh, to worship You, our prayer is that we have indeed worshiped in spirit and in truth, and that You've been pleased with what we've done here today. We, we're thankful for the opportunity to open your word and to study from it. Our, our prayer, Father, our hope, our aim is to do what we find in your word, to commit ourselves to following scripture, to understand it correctly, to handle it correctly, and then to put it into practice. We know, Father, that if we'll abide in your word and be truly your disciples, that we'll be pleasing to you. Help us, Father, in that endeavor. Help us to follow the Word wherever it leads to, to follow this Word. Because all of our confidence, all of our hope is in it because it has come from you.
And Father, we pray that as we go through this life, that we'll have opportunities to share the good news of Christ, like, like early Christians did. Share the good news of Christ with those who will hear it and receive it and obey it. We ask for your blessings, Father. We ask for your patience and your mercy on us. We ask for your help as we go through this life so that we might please you and be with you throughout eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.